This is a Broad Pods production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio. Here for more. Hello and welcome to Broad Radio. I'm Angela Pippos, sitting in Joe Stanley's regular chair. And my co-host today is journalist and author and good friend of mine, Zoe Daniel. Hi, Zoe. Morning, Ange. Good to have you with me, <laughs> helping me along this morning, which is awesome. Coming up on the show, independent MP Zali Stegall will bring her insider insights into the toxic culture inside Parliament House. Uh, Collingwood AFLW co-captain Steph Kiochi will join us to talk about the AFLW finals, which kick off this weekend, Go Crows. And we're also going to celebrate the women of rock with our own, our very own broad radio rock goddess, Kirsty Wiebeck. Give us a like and subscribe on YouTube and a follow on Facebook. And every episode is now available as a podcast. Hooray, which is great news. Um, all you have to do is look us up, Broad Radio On The Go, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Zoe, it does feel like the wheel has come full circle for us because we go a long way back, back to Adelaide. We were at university together studying journalism many, many years ago. And here we are co-hosting on Broad Radio. It's pretty cool, isn't it? And I think we met first in 1994 and <laughs> the first day of university, and of course I grew up in Tasmania, so I was kind of a curiosity according to the Adelaide students when I arrived it was like what what this girl from Tasmania is here and I walked into the tutorial into a group of people that I didn't know mm-hmm. and here was this diminutive Miss Pippos <laughs> wearing a feminist t-shirt um, I believe it was the the woman who, with the fist it was um, Ro- Rosie, yes, we can. Rosie the like Riveter. That. It was Rosie the Riveter. Rosie the Riveter. And it was, we can do it. 
And we have, with varying degrees of success, we have done it ever since 1994 (laughs) and now, and we find ourselves sitting together on broad radio. It's a great privilege. It's fantastic. I remember that day vividly (laughs) as well um, because the course convener had introduced you separately saying we have a very special student with us. She's all the way from Tasmania, um, so please make her comfortable, make her welcome. So me being, you know, a bleeding heart, I thought I've got to hang out with Zoe and make her life a little more comfortable. And we've been great mates ever since. So it's been fantastic. I have really enjoyed watching your career flourish. You've had a wonderful career as a foreign correspondent with the ABC. Um, Can you just give us a snapshot, Zoe, of where you've been and the sort of stories, the highlights of that career because, you know, it's been remarkable. Oh, thank you, Ange. And, you know, I think you just became friends with me because my name is Zoe, which is a very good Greek name, and I'm proud to to wear it, um, to be clear. Um, It means, you you know know what it means, it means life, Zoe. It means life, yes, and life has been pretty busy for me (laughs) since those early days at, at university. You know, I've been very blessed because I started with the ABC in Adelaide as a producer and then I worked all around Australia as a rural journalist and, you know, spent a lot of time in regional and rural areas meeting people where they live, you know, interacting with people on their own turf, getting an understanding of... Uh, people and places and and what mattered to people, people's hopes and aspirations, their disappointments and, and such. And it, it, it really prepared me well for a career as a foreign correspondent where you arrive in an environment that's different to the one that you grew up in or the one that you know. And, and the way to find out is to just spend time with people. So over the last 15 years, really, well, since about the mid-2000s, I've been working overseas mostly. So I was in Africa as the ABC's Africa correspondent covering all all of sub-Saharan Africa, then in Southeast Asia for five years, uh, working out of initially Phnom Penh and then Bangkok. And then I spent four years as the US Bureau Chief in Washington, DC. So the experiences have been really varied, but what I value most, I think the most memorable moments are, again are just talking to ordinary people in their own places you know that huge privilege of being able to travel around in a country that's not yours and get a sense of culture and environment and and talk to people about what matters to them and it's been everything from refugee camps to natural disasters to war and civil unrest to uh, plane crashes to covering Donald Trump, uh, which was an experience in, in itself, as, as you can imagine. Um, so there's been a lot of variety, but I've been so lucky to meet not only world leaders through that and be really on the front end of history a lot of the time, but just to spend time with ordinary people trying to understand what, what's important to them. And I know, Zoe, it's also been super challenging at times for you because you also have two children. How did you go balancing motherhood with being away so often? Yeah, that's been really hard. And I have an incredibly hands-on uh, supporting, supportive husband in Rowan who, you know, really 
has picked up a lot of um, the child caring for the kids, especially in their early years. Um, Travelling, as a- any parent who travels a lot for their work will know, is really hard being away from your family, especially when children are young. It's hard on the parent who's at home uh, and it's hard on you being away. Uh, it Look, it was just a juggle. And um, there were times when it definitely felt too much, especially when I was going into dangerous environments, you know, environments, especially places where I wasn't meant to be. I've done quite a lot of undercover reporting in countries that uh, where journalists are not necessarily um, the favourite people. So places like Zimbabwe, uh, Vietnam, Myanmar or Burma, um, back before the 2010 election where where journalists were not allowed into the country, that sense of, well, I might be arrested and thrown in jail for 20 years and then miss out on my my children and my family, that that was probably the hardest stuff uh, aside from the actual, oh, I'm in the middle of a conflict zone and I may well get physically hurt. That That's another sort of set of risks. But, yeah. You know, you get up in the morning, you figure out what you have to do that day, you work out what the risks are, you do your job and then you come home at the end of the day and you sort of count your blessings and inevitably the people that you've met when you've been out and about during that day are in far worse circumstances than than you are. So it puts everything into very stark perspective. It does, absolutely. Well, you finished with four years of Trump and you've written a book about his presidency, Greetings from Trump Land. Have you got it there? Yay, there it is. Congratulations on your book, Zoe, as well. Um, I watched his reign from afar um, and it was nice to be a long way away from him. Uh, What was it like close up? Uh, Absolutely relentless. Mm -hmm. It was just incredibly busy um, and tricky to navigate too because you know initially it was a case of well Hillary Clinton will win the election obviously then it things started evolving to the point that it was very clear to me that Trump would probably win the election uh, but there was still an expectation that in the polls that she would win obviously then he did win the election the first year of his administration was absolutely crazy in terms of turnover in the White House, policy decisions that he was making. You know, just as a journalist, being on that 24-7 treadmill, trying to keep up with Donald Trump's tweets, the way that he uses chaos theory to control not only the national but the global conversation and really sort of trying to um, navigate an agenda rather than just be chasing uh, his tail the whole time. It, it was really challenging. Uh, four years of Donald Trump was uh, hard, exhausting, uh, and yeah, it was it was a difficult job. Um, but also, again, such an enormous privilege to be right in the thick of you know an unfolding global turning point, which I think. That was, and that's in effect what the book is about, just what is Donald Trump's legacy. Well, so I am so proud to call you my friend. I've really, really loved watching your career unfold. And it's not done with yet. I don't want to make it sound like it's all over. <laughs> There's still time to do something else, Ange. <laughs> well, coming up, we're going to tackle politics closer to home. Independent MP Zali Stegall is going to join us.
Well, the federal government's response to allegations of sexual violence is a story that's not going away. So many of us are feeling angry, disillusioned and tired. But there are people trying to hold the government to account and one of them is independent MP Zali Stegall and she joins us now from Sydney. Good morning, Zali. Good morning. Great to have you on the show. Um, you've been a strong voice for equality and justice over the past um, distressing weeks. Um, perhaps start by telling us, do you think the penny has dropped? Do you think the Prime Minister is beginning to understand the extent of anger in the community, especially amongst women? Um, look, I'm not sure that the penny has fully dropped because when I look at the re cabinet reshuffle that happened yesterday, there's a lot of band-aids, I would say, being put around. Um, a lot more women, women roles being created. Um, but I don't, I'm not, still not seeing concrete action, um, a firm commitment to things like the Respect at Work report, like amending the Sex Discrimination Act. Um, I'm seeing a lot of still words when it comes to who's in Cabinet and what they're going to do, uh, but not firm commitments that we can actually hold them to account to. Zali, you've put forward some changes to the Sex Discrimination Act to try to move the needle on this. You know, I, I'm still unfortunately wondering if we're in the spin cycle rather than the action cycle. And your reference to Band-Aid solutions speaks to that. You know, sending people off empathy training seems like a, a fairly half-hearted step. What do you think it's going to take to actually result in a change rather than just this circular conversation that we keep having? Yeah, I think what's really it's going to take is a wake-up call to the Prime Minister. So I think some uh, polling that shows that uh, satisfaction with his performance is down. Uh, I think people really indicating that this is impacting their voting integrity intention. I think that all of those indicators are things the Prime Minister takes more seriously than maybe doing the right thing, which is taking firm action. Now, empathy training, uh, I, I'm sorry, I've tried to discuss that with like even uh, my teenage children and they are laughing at the concept of grown men having to go and do empathy training and people who have been in the job for a very long time. It is ridiculous. The only thing that can be done is that they be asked to resign. In the corporate world, there would be no question that that is what would happen. So that's what should happen to Andrew Lamming? Uh, look, I think, again, the proper course has to be done in terms of the allegations against him, but there seems to be a rather large body of allegations in relation to conduct that is really questionable. Now, our kids, our uh, uh, the police, in every profession, you get hauled in if you're caught in that kind of behaviour. Um, I just, it beggars belief that at the moment it's go off and do some empathy training and have some time off on leave. But I think it's a broader question. The, I think the Prime Minister is still being political in his response here. He's looking at his political survival. Um, he's worrying about his numbers in the House instead of worrying about what's right. Um, but ironically, Worrying about your political survival could ultimately cost you your political survival because people, what I'm hearing is a lot of people are very dissatisfied with the response, that it hasn't been good enough and there hasn't been any concrete firm announcements. 
such as commit to the Respect at Work report recommendations, um, amend legislation, put in place, uh, commit to debating the legislation that is currently before the House to ensure professional standards for members of Parliament and their staff. I mean, there are some real things the Prime Minister could be doing to very much take the lead on stamping out this toxic culture in Parliament and saying, right, enough is enough. From here forward, this is a whole new set of standards that we are going to expect and hold you to. But they're not doing that. They're still talking about investigating, looking, you know, a little bit of empathy training. It really is. Um, it's just words. Is the culture worse in Parliament than any other workplace? Well, look, I'm not qualified to comment on all workplaces. I can talk to the environments I've experienced. Uh, I was a professional athlete for uh, a good about 14 years. Um, I certainly experienced and observed some pretty interesting behaviour and sports people tend to be criticised a lot for when they, uh, when they misbehave. Um, I've then spent 10 years at the New South Wales Bar and now as a barrister, that's a very patriarchal profession. The legal profession has its problems. They're investigating it. And I certainly saw some inappropriate behaviour there. But also, I think, uh, a system that is engaging with its problem and know, knows it has to do something about it. I've been on a number of boards uh, where I know from a corporate point of view, boards are very much engaging with this problem and what do they have to do to ensure uh, equitable representation on boards, equitable rules and regulations, uh, constitutions that get amended uh, and, and processes put in place to ensure good diversity and good equity at board level. Now, what I'm not seeing in Parliament is that same professional approach and standards. I was shocked when I went into Parliament to find out that there were no professional standards for MPs. The Prime Minister speaks a lot about the Canberra bubble and I'm sort of thinking it's now a behavioural bubble as well as a figurative bubble in, in other ways. Can you speak to just what it's like being a female MP in federal parliament? You know, other women who've worked there have, have talked to even themselves becoming desensitised to the behaviour that it's around them. That you, you kind of become used to it because that's the world in which you exist and it's only when you step out of it that you go, oh, that was actually not, not appropriate. What kinds of things do you experience? Um, well, look, I think I've come into it as a mature age, you know, I've had my professional experience, so I don't think I'm coming into it naive or um, uh, I, I am coming into it with my eyes wide open. I think as an independent, I do have a different experience. I don't have to do the whole party room shenanigans. I don't have to do all that networking. Um, I don't have to have those rivalries within the same team. I mean, that's surprised me a lot is how much behind the, the, the front line of each party, there is a lot of competition and cutthroat negotiating going on. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very competitive environment. So I don't have that. Um, but what I have observed is a number of members of parliament who are really quite out, out of touch, I would say, with what is accepted as good social norms and certainly good professional norms. So people who maybe have been in parliament for too long or have come from uh, backgrounds where they haven't had to engage in a professional way with staffers, with media, with colleagues. Um, and I would say their conduct is often quite 
um, inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, look, I haven't experienced anything myself, but I'm very conscious that I have a lot of young staff, uh, men and men and women, and I'm very conscious of what experience they have and to make sure that it is at all times appropriate. I guess maybe I'm, I'm fairly outspoken, so um, I don't think anyone would mess with me lightly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Zali, let's look at some immediate steps that could be taken to address the cultural problems, beginning with quotas. Um, The Prime Minister has said he's open to quotas, but we all know that historically the Liberal Party has been um, allergic to them, let's say. Um, Where do you stand on quotas? Do you think they're a good way of sort of breaking down masculine norms? Yeah, absolutely. I fully support quotas. Uh, when in my board roles, I was always very much pushing for 50-50 um, or, uh, you know, a 50-50, if not, why not? So there has to be a good reason why it shouldn't be an equal um, representation or at the very least, you know, the 40-40-20 model um, to ensure good diversity. So I have no issues with quota. I very much support them. I think we have to be real uh, when, you know, the merit argument gets trotted out. It's, it's rubbish because at the end of the day, you can twist and turn merit to suit yourself and there's always so much unconscious bias that goes into decisions. Um, people will generally pick what reflects themselves. And so, you know, a whole, a very patriarchal system or a system that is dominated by men will continue to engender more men being given opportunity or recognised for roles, always on the basis of, of merit. It's clear in Parliament there are quotas in so many ways. When you look at the deal or the arrangement between the coali- in the coalition between the Nationals and the Liberals, there's clearly a question of quota as to how many front bench position ministerial roles are given to each party. So that's a quota system. That's not a question of merit of are, are each person, uh, is each person, MP put into a cabinet role absolutely the best person for the role? Um, more often than not, what you have is factions being represented. You have the nationals, they have their quota. You have the more conservative side of the liberals, they also have a quota within the minister minister roles and, and then you'll have the more, uh, the more centre ones. So there are quotas happening all the time. It is rubbish to suggest that um, this everyone is in their role on merit. There's been some analysis floating around that you could almost fix this imbalance in one cycle if you physically kind of blocked men from standing in particular seats. I mean, I I feel like that's a huge leap from where we are now. And I just wonder where that will is going to come from if we circle back to the beginning of this conversation, which was that really we're still at the tinkering around the edges part of this conversation, incredibly, uh, and action is still all in front of us. Yeah, look, uh, I think, yes, we can change a lot by having, I think if the coalition and Liberals especially have quotas, I think that will help a lot. We have to be really clear. It needs to be putting uh, women into safe seats just as much as hard seats because invariably women are up for the challenge of fighting over marginal seats and so then it's, but, but it's not, uh, you know, there isn't the same security. But we also have to talk about the advisor roles and the senior roles in departments uh, to really do an audit of 
how many female advisors are there in senior roles? I'm not talking the junior advisor, but the chief of staff. How many chiefs of staff are women within the Liberal Party at the moment? How many ministers have female chiefs of staff? Um, I think that they are the important questions as well because this is a whole ecosystem that feeds on itself. Um, and so you need to have that respectful um, workplace across all levels, not just who are the MPs and ministers, but who are the chief of staffs, who are the media advisors, who, you know, the whole ecosystem needs to be more balanced. I think by nature of having uh, more women in there, you will just cut down, I think, just opportunity for misbehaviour. Um, you know, when I look at the Labor Party, I don't think that they haven't got their problems. I think they've definitely had their misbehaviour. But the simple reality that when they look around their their party room, that they have a much greater spread of men and women means, you know, your opportunities for bad behaviour get cut down. And I think with numbers comes a willingness to speak out when maybe someone is, is being inappropriate. So um, it's a very interesting time. I think... It, a lot of women have taken matters into their own hands, like me, and ran as independents. Um, I couldn't, um, for me, I thought it was so much more important to be true to my values and true to the electorate than to be part of um, a party uh, as a way of coming into politics. And I know Helen Haynes, for example, represents Indi, Rebecca Sharkey re represents Mayo, you have someone like Jackie Lambie that's really strong and powerful. And look, someone like Pauline Hanson, I don't agree with her politics, but she's certainly been a strong um, independent you know, voice um, for her own views. So I think women have been more prepared to do it alone um, than have to toe a party line. So it, it's a very interesting time. Uh, and look, I do hope for uh, good of democracy that we can get more diversity into our politics. And Zali, what about the role of the Minister for Women in creating change? I mean, Maurice Payne has been heavily criticised throughout um, this sort of uh, bleak period in Australian politics. And I, uh, I heard the Prime Minister yesterday describe her now as effectively the Prime Minister for Women. Um, what did you make of that comment? Um, to me, it sort of implied that he wasn't the Prime Minister for Women. Uh, look, it was strange. And again, I just, uh, I, I don't understand. Um, to me, it was either an abdication from him of the responsibility of fixing this problem and of addressing the, the responsibility of having equitable policies and making sure that he, as Prime Minister, puts in place policies uh, and programs that address the inequities that we have and the very serious problems. And so it's nearly like it was a, it was a, it was a hospital pass to uh, the minister that somehow she's now going to be responsible for all of this um, and it's off his, off his sort of diary. Um, and at the same time, she's not, she doesn't have those wide sweeping powers to ensure that she actually makes a difference on these uh, really important issues. I have been very critical of her because I think this is, if you're going to be a minister for women, you actually have to go out to the March for Justice and listen to women. I, I'm, I'm just sorry, but you don't, um, you cannot be in that role and command respect for being in that role and do nothing with it. Um, I think the part of the anger and frustration that so many women are feeling is um, we've had enough with the posturing, enough with people having the title but doing nothing with it. Um, so a Minister for Women, well, show us what you're going to do with that role. 
Zali, I just want to jump in just before we let you go and kind of go back to the nuts and bolts things to protect women in the parliament because I feel like we've, we're on a two-track conversation here. One is a much bigger picture cultural shift and the other is simple workplace safety and some basic actions that can be taken to make sure that everyone's in a, a safe workplace. What do you make of these suggestions of uh, alcohol bans, drug testing, for example, and the sorts of penalties that should be imposed on people in that place who don't behave appropriately? And those are things that could happen virtually overnight, I would think. Um, absolutely. I would support all that. It is a very strange workplace, if I could say, having you know spent 10 years at the bar uh, as an athlete. I've, I've experienced a lot of different environments, but it is a very unusual work environment. Um, it's their very long days where you might start with media and other things very early, like so in Parliament from sort of on the go, on show from, say, 7 to 7.30, then the House doesn't stop sitting until 8 o'clock for the House of Reps. And literally, from the time the, the, the session starts, you are on call at any time to have to run down to the chamber for a vote. So you don't have like an hour for lunch where you can go off and do something. The only official break there is in proceedings of the House is between 1.30 and 2 o'clock. So 1.30 to 2 o'clock is when you can have 90-second statements and then question time starts. And so it's basically the only time when there's really a little bit of, um, you know, certainty, 30 minutes of you knowing that you're not going to have to run down for a vote. So you cannot leave the building. Um, you can't, you know, it's a very, my diary is booked out in 15 minute slots of different groups and organisations that want to come and share with me their reports and findings and lobby on behalf of a cause. So it's a very, very full on um, day. And I think uh, for a lot of people, it ends up being very poor eating habits and, and drinking, um, possibly turning to drugs to sustain energy over the day. Um, and, and that is a real worry. So I do agree that more normal um, work hours for the house to sit, if we have to schedule more sitting days, then that's fine, but make them more reasonable days in length. Um, I don't have a problem with drug or alcohol testing because I think we have a duty as members of parliament. We are there representing uh, our electorates. It, it is a, it's a privilege, not a right. Um, and we have a duty to do it to the best of our abilities. And that means, um, you know, doing it with full capacity, not, not impaired. So um, I have, definitely would support all those kind of measures. Well, Zali, thank you for your voice, for your commitment to change and for joining us on Broad Radio this morning. We know you're very busy. We really appreciate it. Uh, continue all thank the good you. work. Thank you very much. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Match. Broad Radio, talking inspo we love, info we need, and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday, 9am, Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere, every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2 a.m. existential crisis, <laughs> we've got you covered. Broad Radio, here for more. Well, there's a lot of buzz about the new authorised documentary simply called Tina. So that's a good excuse for us at Broad Radio to broaden the discussion out to the great women of rock. And who better to lead the way than our very own rock goddess, Kirsty Wiebeck. Hello. <laughs> yeah, hello. How are you going? <laughs> good. Do you like your new title? I love it so much. It's already on my business cards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it's a state of mind. I don't even think you need to be able to sing well. I think Rock Goddess is an absolute state of mind. I agree with that. And I'm thankful for that as well because I actually did want to be a rock star at some stage. And then I found out how difficult it is to learn the guitar. Uh, I did learn the guitar for a couple of years. And uh, I could play a few songs on the guitar, but... Do you have any idea how hard it is to play the guitar and sing at the same same time? I, and I mean, they're not required. You don't have to do both of them, except you look a lot cooler if you're playing the guitar and singing. That's true. Um, in my house, I have to give a 10-second warning before I break out into song. So that gives you an idea about my own <laughs> singing talents. But of course, it never stops me. Um, and I am allowed to sing without a warning on Christmas Day and my birthday. Um, but apart from that, um, yeah, Simon and Francis don't want to hear me sing. You've heard me sing, Zoe. Ange and I, Kirsty, have history on the karaoke stage. I'm going public with that now. Uh, but I will not be giving you a demo today. That That is definitely not in my, my uh, high-level <laughs> skill set. Uh, lip syncing, however, or singing very loudly in the car, especially with the sunroof open and the radio up full blast, I'm that person. Yes. Yeah, great. <laughs> I love a car song. <laughs> I, and one more story. I did a duet uh, for a charity with an actual proper singer. His name's Matt Dwyer. And we did I Got You, Babe. And I was booed at a charity event. <laughs> I was told to get off the stage. That's how bad I was. I was much better in rehearsals. I swear, I was really good in rehearsals. <laughs> but when it came it's not to the charity, actual... you'd, think... <laughs> you'd think a charity event would be a safe space in which people would be more supportive. So, Ange, you've absolutely hit rock bottom there. <laughs> That's true. Well, let's talk about Tina Turner. She is someone who can belt out a song. Um, 
First of all, before we talk about her life, let's just take a look at the trailer to the documentary, Tina. My mother, she used to sit in the window of the kitchen when she was making dinner on Sundays. I used to just watch her. I thought she was so pretty. One day she wasn't in that window. She was never in it again. I wanted her to come for me. And I waited. She never did. And it's all right. You know why? I'm a girl from a cotton field that put myself above the destruction and the mistakes. And I'm here for you. Really, the energy, um, the power of her voice, her hair, her clothes, the way she moved on stage. Um, she's been a joy, really, hasn't she? And the fact that, you know, she's so resilient and strong and left that bad situation just makes us love her even more. You know, it speaks to me about um, African-American women too, particularly of that era. Incredibly, Tina Turner's 81 now. And I, I really see this documentary as actual documentary history. You know, it is so important that her story is recorded in her own words. And that that period of 81 years of her life, so much has changed in regard to the, the role of women in society and, and the role of um, people of colour in society, you know, that that is a huge period of world history to have been a part of and, and to have observed. And I was saying to both of you earlier that just before I left DC or maybe 12 months before I left the US, I was at a concert where Aretha Franklin sang and I think it was either her last concert or one of her last concerts before she died. Another of the divas who had such a hard, life and but managed to traverse this incredibly difficult road um, with her own battles and still was able to get on up on stage in her 80s and deliver this concert to to an outdoor crowd in in Virginia you know these are incredibly strong people well Tina Turner has said that this is this documentary is her swan song it's her public goodbye if you like and she's going to just sort of quietly see out her remaining years because she hasn't been in good health in Zurich where she lives with her husband um, and you're right it's an important document of a life a compelling life and these are the stories that we need to tell and you know mm -hmm. as a filmmaker historically the stories of women um, have been ignored or sidelined or overlooked um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing this. Kirsty, who are your favourite um, rock goddesses? Oh, this is, this is a tough one for me. I mean, Tina, absolutely. I can't wait to watch this documentary. I actually just got goosebumps watching that trailer then. I was like, oh, I can't wait. Such a fascinating story. But I grew up on, uh, I, I grew up on a lot of uh, like grunge rock, I guess. 
Like I was a big whole fan yeah. and Courtney Love, like got a, a lot of love for Courtney. Um, I grew up on bands like Veruca Salt as well. So yeah, or Super Jesus, if we're taking it local, like oh. Sarah McLeod of the Super Jesus, like was a big icon for me when I tried to learn how to play the guitar. And she's a good Adelaide girl. Yeah, loved that band. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up on a lot of a lot of rock. Yeah, rock goddesses. So, yeah, very inspirational. And also, when you look at people like Tina Turner, as you were saying before, like just how much things have changed over the duration of her life. But people akin to her as well. Just all of the barriers that they overcame to rise to the top of their field. Like if you consider how difficult it is in some areas still to even just be a woman, let alone like an African-American woman, and you have all of these barriers and then just life things and the hardships of life and then being able to be an international superstar, like that's so incredible and inspiring. Zoe, you mentioned Aretha Franklin. I think I'm going to round out my top three with Joan Jett and Debbie Harry. Got any others you want to throw in? That's well, I'm, I'm kind of on the Chrissy approved. Amphlett train as well. I think Chrissy Amphlett's got to be in mm-hmm. that top 10. Um, but I did want to say, Kirsty, that, you know, speaking of people who've uh, traversed great barriers to become global superstars, you are one of those, right? <laughs> <laughs> top of your game. <laughs> Lovely. If uh, if by great barriers, Zoe, you're referring to my most recent jaunt at a music festival just before the pandemic hit when I lent on a wheelie bin at the top of a wet hill and the wheelie bin, of course, was on wheels, the clue was in the title, and it took off but it took me with it and somehow I managed to get <laughs> underneath the wheelie bin and the wheelie bin rode me down the hill before we crashed into a pile of other wheelie bins <laughs> and were then saved by some heroes who had to remove several bins off me while my friends all looked on in absolute horror. So you're right. It's a miracle I'm still on the comedy circuit. <laughs> the big question is, though, that when Ange is making, or Ange and I are making the documentary on your life, <laughs> Did anyone get that on video? (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to put a call out out. I'm sure someone did. (laughs) See, Zoe, we're we're lucky. When we were at university and getting up to all kinds of mischief, no one had a mobile phone. And so none of it was ever recorded, (laughs) thankfully. We dodged dodged a bullet there. And generationally... Uh, we are definitely in the lucky pile on that front. <laughs> Kirsty, when you're not rolling down a hill with a wheelie bin, you are creating great comedy. Um, how's your Melbourne International Comedy Festival season going? Yeah, it's going great so far. I mean, my, my show actually, my solo show opens on the 6th, which is next Tuesday, and I've got mm-hmm. 14 shows of that. So at the moment, um, last week I just did my first uh opening night gala uh i've I've never had the opportunity to do that that before so i did that last week which was an amazing experience probably a a career highlight 
And at the moment, I'm just cruising around doing lots and lots of sort of lineup shows and emceeing rooms and getting the word out there. And uh, yeah, just having fun and being out amongst all of the laughter, basically. And Kirsty, did I read, because, you know, as someone who became incredibly lazy during lockdown about travelling more than five kilometres from my house, did I read that you're doing shows in the burbs? What's it called? Comedy Commutes? That's a cool idea. you did, yes. It's really great. The Comedy Festival came up with it and it's like a mini road show, which we usually do through the regions. And so, yes, for people that might be a bit reluctant to get out into the city or who just live locally and want to want a gig nearby that they can walk to or whatever, yeah, Hawthorne, Footscray and, and Brunswick is what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, awesome idea. Great lineups. It's a great mm. idea. Kirsty, is there any singing in your show, which is called Chuck a Sicky? <laughs> well, there wasn't, but after this chat this morning, I think I might clear the way. I'll clear the way for 20 minutes. <laughs> You've been inspired <laughs> by Tina Turner, not, not yeah. by me, but by Tina Turner. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I love following you on Twitter. It's It provides much-needed comedy when there's so much wrong with the world and so much wrong in Canberra. Um, it's so good to sort of scroll down Twitter and, and get a laugh following you. So thank you. You're, you're providing a community service, a much-needed one. <laughs> thank you. My pleasure. Kirsty, it's great to chat to you. Always fantastic chat to uh, chat to you. All the best with the comedy festival. Thanks, Legends. I'll talk to you soon. And also, the Tina Turner documentary is on Foxtel. If you want to check it out, and we'll have more broad radio after this. Well, it's finals time in AFLW. My team, the Adelaide Crows, have made it through. In fact, they are the minor premiers in season 2021. Zoe, I think you should be barracking for the Crows because you spent so much time in Adelaide. You met me there. You studied there. Um, You haven't got a team in the AFLW because Essendon doesn't have one yet. Is that a fair call? Well, I've got to go for someone, Pip, until the Bombers are there. You know, (laughs) Adelaide... Sure, why not? <laughs> Good, <laughs> correct answer. I should answer. go for Collingwood, although if I did, my father might disown me. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll stick with the Crows. Speaking of <laughs> Collingwood, yeah, the Magpies have also made it through and their co-captain, one of my favourite AFLW players, Steph Kiochi, has stopped her getting ready for work routine to join us this morning. Hi, Steph. Hello, thank you for having me. And I didn't realise Zoe didn't have a team, so that changes things now. I'm going to have to try and convince her to go Collingwood. And I know all about going for the rival team, so we can chat. We can definitely chat. Good luck with that, Steph. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Now, we're still friends after the result on Sunday? Yeah, we sure are. We go way way back further than just the game of footy, don't we, Ange? Um, But, yeah, it was a good contest. Adelaide, obviously, as you mentioned, finished on top of the ladder now and have won two of the last four, or two of the last three, really. We didn't have a result last year, so they're still minor pre- uh, reigning premiers, really, aren't they? They are. They absolutely are. Yeah. Now, this year's a bit different. There's a top six. The Magpies have finished third. You just missed out on second place uh, by percentage. Um, this means you've got a qualifying final against North Melbourne coming up. But how would you assess the season that your team has had? Yeah, well, firstly, obviously, we've had... Um, a ladder that includes everybody rather than the two conferences. So it's nice that we've got a top six. But for us, I suppose, looking back to 
to year one and year two, we, we underperformed. I think it's well documented. Um, I think we won a handful of games in those two seasons. And in year three, we only won the one game. So to see where we are today is really pleasing, having been there from the start. Um, we've had a pretty consistent season. We won six games on the trot um, and then dropped a game to, to Brisbane, who are really, really competitive. Um, and then obviously now we, we sit third and we take on North Melbourne in a qualifying final, which is very similar to last year. Um, where we face them um, in that same round. So it'll be very interesting. Steph, Ange mentioned that we've stopped you from going to work this morning. <laughs> you might be a few minutes late because of us. Uh, I'm curious how you're balancing working and training and the demands of playing. You know, Ange alluded in the interview to my Essendon uh, loyalties and, and it so happens that my dad played for the Bombers and when he first started playing in the late 60s and 70s, he was also working as a full-time teacher and playing for the mm. Bombers and getting paid something like 30 bucks a game. So it was a very different time. H how do you work through that? Because I know that's been something that you've had to balance over the last couple of years. How's that going? Yeah, look, I think, you know, if you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have said, oh, I just feel really lucky to be playing footy and absolutely love it and things like that. But um, I suppose the novelty shifted in a sense where now I'm going, geez, it really, really is hard and um, balancing that sort of full-time work and then heading into training. Like a typical morning would be getting up around this time um, and then heading into work and not getting home till 4, 4.30, training starts at 6 and then you're not home till 9.30, 10 p.m. So it is quite taxing and then if you add the travel factor, although obviously Collingwood haven't travelled too often this season, but um, there are other teams that have done a tonne of travel and are balancing their study, part-time and full-time work. So it is challenging, but at the end of the day, we love what we do and it, it's just the way, way that it is for now and hopefully we're paving the way for a full-time competition where girls can actually strive to become an AFRW player on a full-time wage and that could be their income. So we know the part and role we're playing, I suppose, at the moment. Um, but, yeah, I guess it's just a really fine balancing act. You probably caught me on a very tired morning um, given that we have just returned from Adelaide. Um, but, yeah, I won't be complaining because we do love what we do and we've got finals to play now. Collingwood men's team doesn't travel much too. <laughs> yeah, good stab, Dan. Um, yeah, apparently not. Apparently not. Apparently we're very well looked after. That's what I'm hearing. I've never got so much abuse on Twitter, I think, about the fact that we haven't travelled and I just sort of gone, just sat there and took it in and went, wow, this is what it's like to be a Collingwood player, isn't it? Even if you're in the middle of a pandemic and you've got no control over it. <laughs> Part of the territory. Uh, this season there were nine regular season games. Um, how many would you like to see? In an ideal world, we would play everybody once, wouldn't we? Um, so you'd have 13 games um, with the one full ladder. Um, I think the shift to have the one full ladder this season has been really pleasing and a positive step forward for our competition. Um, but, yeah, love to have a crack at every team. Um, I think that's probably obviously the fairest way to do it, but I understand that there are restraints and um, at the moment it is the nine games and the three weeks of finals. And I think next year is quite similar as well. How do you see it evolving, Steph? As in, you know, when do you see other teams coming in? When do you see that expansion starting to happen? Yeah, I think our current CBA um, concludes at the end of 2022 and I think we're set with the amount of teams until then. Um, it'd be nice to see, you know, your Essendon and Hawthorne 
uh, Port Adelaide and Sydney, you know, become a part of the competition in the near future. I think it, it all starts at grassroots level. We've got lots and lots of girls playing the game at the moment and, you know, the numbers seem to increase every year. I don't know what COVID or how COVID has affected that. Obviously, there was no state league here in Victoria last year, but, um, you know, you've got that clear pathway now from junior NAB kick, um, there's youth girls competition and then the NAB league into the AFLW. So if we continue to invest in the grassroots, we get girls playing our wonderful sport, um, develop them from a really young age and prepare their bodies for, you know, the top level, then I can't see why we can't have, um, you know, those four extra teams or the four teams coming into the competition in the near future. I think it was always touted as being 2030 um, is when they wanted a full-time competition. I don't know if that's through the PA or, or the AFL, but that was sort of the, the, the aim. Um, and, yeah, we're working towards that. As you said, Steph, you've been there from the beginning. I want to take you back to the inaugural AFLW draft. And we met around about that time because uh, I was making a documentary and featuring you as one of our um, players. Let's just take a look at how it all unfolded because it didn't really go according to plan for you on that day. There was so much tension and we were riding it all with you, just desperately <laughs> wanting your name to be called out. Just just talk us through that day and how important it was for you. Yeah, it's super important. I think coming off the back of representing the Western Bulldogs um, in the exhibition series, that's what you're alluding to. I um, obviously captained them and, and played with them for two or three years. And for people that don't know, obviously the exhibition series was a, a, a game between Melbourne and, and the Bulldogs um, to showcase women's football and there was a mini draft years before that. So I'd been involved with the Bulldogs and wasn't taken with their priority pick, which they had an opportunity to, to sign someone that was involved with their club, um, which was disappointing at the time, but I think everything happens for a reason. And, yeah, we had to sit at the draft in we edge and patiently wait for the name to be called out. And I think it was Collingwood's pick then it was Bulldogs and then Carlton. So there was just so many emotions, you know. Collingwood, yay, great. The, the arch rivals of Carlton who I grew up barracking for, Bulldogs who, you know, didn't take me their priority pick but I still had a connection to. And then Carlton, my beloved Blue Boys, you know. It was, I should say, Blue Blue Boys and girls now, um, <laughs> although we don't like the girls. Um, you know, so it was just a weird, 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 um, weird night or mm. weird day. Mm. Let's jump forward now to the AFLW Grand Final this year. If Collingwood wins the right to host the Grand Final, where should it be played? That's a very good question. I actually got asked this by a journalist in Adelaide over the weekend, um, not, not referencing us making the Grand Final, just in general. And she mentioned the MCG and I was like, absolutely. Wouldn't that be unreal? Um, look, if we win... If we make it to the grand final, you know, I think Philip obliged to say we'd want to play at our spiritual home at Big Park. Um, it is really special to us, obviously, the history involved. You know, you don't need me to go through all that, but there is something very special about the place. And, um, you know, if the walls could talk, i tell you what, I reckon there'd be many, many stories. Um, but, yeah, we love playing there and, you know, we've made it our fortress. We you know, we haven't dropped a game there this season and we're really trying to make it our own. Although we don't train there, um, when we do play there, it is really special and we feel as though it lifts us. So um, I, I think I have to say Vic Park. 
I have to disagree. Yes, how, do you, how do you manage the pressure? <laughs> yeah. Vic Park, that, that could be an interesting, uh, quite noisy game if it went ahead at Vic Park, I think. I was just going to ask, Steph, how you, how you manage the pressure. You know, you talked about how it felt on draft day and I wonder if that ever goes away. You know, you, you get drafted and then you have to perform and then you become the co-captain and then you're trying to make the grand final. So you've got that that pressure there all the time. You know, I think it actually speaks to women in a range of industries and also girls who are coming through trying to achieve their dreams and who are ambitious, who will stumble on the way, find things difficult as they try to find a path. But, you know, how do you navigate that daily pressure, that expectation, both of others, because you've got fans on you and the coach, but mm. also yourself. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, you, you look at our form in the first few years as, as a sole captain at the club at the time, you know, we weren't performing, we weren't winning, I wasn't playing my best football. And yeah, the, the pressure does, you know, mount on you. And you do feel sort of responsible for that. But I soon learned that, you know, even as a leader, it's really important to lean on other people. Um, I'm certainly not someone that thinks that I have to do it all by myself. And the one, yeah, probably the main thing I've learned being in a leadership position is that it's okay to have, I wouldn't say weaknesses, but areas to improve. And um, I quickly learned that you need to rely on other people and you need to voice that. Um, and I think that's what makes a leadership group um, and a team really, really solid is if you can do that. So um, to be fair, the last two seasons, because we've been playing better football and um, we've seen a shift in the way that we want to play, the, the pressure sort of eased a little bit. Um, but now in saying that, the expectation is that we do, you know, go really deep into finals. So we're just going to make sure that we focus on the process and, if we play the way that we want to play, then, you know, the reward, the win will take care of itself. Um, I truly do believe that. But, again, it is just about leaning on other people and making sure you're all on the same page, um, blocking out the external noise, um, making sure that you're just focusing on what, what's going on inside the four walls. I know that's very cliche, but it is true. We can't be worrying about what's being said on the outside. Um, easier said than done, but um, just ensuring that we know what we're doing um, and we're staying on track for that. And has sharing the captaincy helped with all of that for you? Yeah, it really has. I absolutely love co-captaining with Bree Davey. You know, fantastic person um, above anything else. Um, we get along like a house on fire um, and obviously one of the competition's best players and a great leader. So um, I I've absolutely loved it. And I think the club, the way the club approached it was to ensure that, you know, I'm not burning out. Um, it's it's Bree's time as well. and. Um, I think we work really well together and it's just really nice to share that load. And we do lead in very different ways, but then we're always on the same page and we see things really similarly. So um, it's been a real blessing for me, um, I'd say, this this season, especially working full-time. Last year I took term one off um, to focus on football and committed myself to football, which really helped my footy, my development, I think the team as well. Um, whereas this year I'm obviously heading off to work after this. So... Um, <laughs> wasn't granted that that leave and it's nice to have someone to share the load with that's for sure but are you still having fun i am i am having fun um it's a lot more fun when you're winning um that's for sure i'd be lying if i said that didn't play a factor but no i think from where we've come from being there in, in the inaugural season to where we are now where we're playing some really good football got a great young list um of girls really good people i think that's what drives me and 
um, you know, we want success and we're on the right path towards it. So we just need to keep grinding and um, enjoying ourselves on the way. Um, but yeah, it's really important to, to remember that it is about having fun as much as it is winning. Um, but I think they go hand in hand. Well, Steph, as we wrap up, mm. who's the team to beat? Well, obviously us. Uh, it's going to be us, but um, having played, you know, both the top two teams, Adelaide and Brisbane, uh, very, very, very good outfits. Um, I think Adelaide's probably in the box seat for me. Um, they were just really fast, really fit, um, and really disciplined in the way they wanted to play, and um, they were able to shut down our game. So, yeah, I think Adelaide are probably the team to beat at the moment. For the record, if you host the final, it should be at the MCG. If it's Adelaide, it should be Adelaide Oval. If it's Brisbane, it should be the Gabba. That's where I stand on this issue. <laughs> I yeah, think we look, should really push. We should push and push to be on the biggest stage possible for women in sport. That's, um, that's where I stand on the issue. Steph, thanks for joining us. I know you've got to get to work. It's been great to chat to you. All the best over the next three weeks and say hi to your mum and dad from me. I will do. I'm sure they, Dad will be definitely listening to this. No worries at all. Um, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And hopefully see you in three weeks, maybe in Adelaide. Who knows? <laughs> maybe in Adelaide Oval. Let's hope so. Good on you, Steph. Okay, this week's um, More to Say poll is true female music icons. Of course it is. And you can only choose one. That's a very difficult choice. You can vote at broadradio.com.au to win a bottle of Moores Hill Sparkling. That sounds pretty good. Well, Zoe, that's it for today's show, our 13th Broad Radio show, lucky number 13. Thanks for sharing it with me. It's always good to have you by my side, not literally in the studio with me, but just knowing that you're there um, always gives me some comfort. You've led me astray a little bit over the years with karaoke and other things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you are a wonderful friend. Thanks for um, co-hosting with me today. Thanks, Ange. And we will have more Broad Radio next week. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.